This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article about treating hepatitis C in people who inject drugs. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm doing really well. How are you doing, John? It's fantastic. Um, you know, we're recording this at the end of February, and it's uh, it's like 60 degrees outside, sunny today. It was really nice. I felt like it was spring. It is, but it feels a little abnormal to me. The little peeper frogs are all peeping from the creek behind our house, but I worry they're all going to have to go back to hibernation in another 48 hours when the temperature drops. This is true. I'll enjoy it while we have it. How about you? What's been new with you? Not much. Um, there's been a ton of addiction medicine news this week, though, that I really want to share with our audience. The biggest thing is that the FDA, there's an FDA advisory panel, and they voted to make naloxone nasal spray, which is Narcan nasal spray, an over-the-counter medicine. Now, this doesn't mean the FDA has officially approved it, but they almost always go along with the recommendations of this advisory panel. So I think we can really expect to have naloxone be over-the-counter in the near future. John, do you carry naloxone nasal spray yourself? You know, I actually do not, although I feel like I, I should. And I actually feel somewhat guilty admitting that on this podcast. How about you? I do. I have one in my bag that I carry with me, and I just got a new one. Our health system, St. Max's Health System, gives it out for free at our pharmacies. So you could get one at any of our pharmacies and carry it with you. They even put it in a little kit with a CPR mask and a pair of gloves for you. Oh, wow. I'm going to pick that up this week. Definitely do that. Do you think everyone should carry naloxone? I think that that certainly is the question. I think definitely people that have family members in the adolescent uh, and teenage years where there's higher risk of of this, but also people with family members suffering from substance use disorder or, or mental illness are very high risk. Um, how about you? I do. I read a report from the CDC. They reported that 40% of overdose deaths had someone else present at the time that the person overdosed. So 60% of people were alone, but 40% someone else was present at the patient's overdose that killed them. And if that person had been willing or able to use naloxone, a life could have been saved. You know, if you live in the state of Pennsylvania, like we do, there's already a standing order for everyone in the state to get naloxone from a pharmacy. And for many of our patients, I know, I think most actually naloxone is covered by health insurance. So even if you don't want to pay for it yourself, you could ask your doctor for a prescription and it might be covered by your health insurance. That's great information. Thanks, Sonia. John, is there anything you want to share with our audience? Um, I just wanted to share. I was reading an interesting article from Politico, and it was basically about federal legislation for cannabis. So I think um, we've talked about this a couple of times on the show, but cannabis is here in the United States. In fact, two-thirds of Americans currently support cannabis legality uh, for one reason or another. In 37 states, you can obtain it legally. 21 of those states, you're allowed to actually uh, purchase it recreationally. And I think that there is a lot of thoughts about health benefits, although there's really kind of a limited research about from the medical side about the benefits of this. It was kind of released without all that information. And so now we're seeing uh, several years of this and we're starting to see some some data about the effects of kind of releasing this to the general population. Um, certainly studies are mounting about uh, increased risk of emphysema, learning deficits in the developing brain, but even kind of nationally other trends from like emergency departments where pediatric edible poison for example, increased from 2017 to at 207 patients nationally to 2021, where it was 3,054 overdoses in pediatric patients that were reported. So underestimates the true amount. 
And then things like uh, car crashes involving uh, cannabis use have doubled since uh, 2000 to 2018. So certainly kind of a, a possible rising health risk. There's this thing called the Marijuana Caucus, and it's basically a bipartisan group that's kind of overseeing and kind of like uh, advocating for marijuana legality for different reasons. And they've even said to put restrictions and some oversight about the distribution of marijuana um, from a federal standpoint. Some things that they've done is they want to talk about liberalizing uh, restrictions on studying marijuana from a medical perspective. So that's always kind of been tough in the past because it's hard to study an illegal substance in the United States. They also propose things like child-proof containers for edibles, which would kind of decrease those risk of overdoses in the pediatric patients, uh, restricting advertising, and possibly setting standards on THC potency. So kind of just ways of possibly mitigating, um, balancing the want of the American people with the possible harms. So I thought that was interesting to see that. And we could put a link to that article in the show notes. What do you think about that, Sonia? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, I kind of feel that marijuana is like alcohol in that it's not really a health-promoting activity. It doesn't necessarily make a lot of people healthier, but plenty of people enjoy it recreationally in a way that doesn't cause them a lot of harm. I will be interested to see if it, once it's more accepted as a recreational activity, it'll fall away as being touted as a cure-all medical product. I think once recreational marijuana is widely legal, this whole medical marijuana thing is going to kind of fade away. And, you know, medical groups and pharmaceutical companies will study purified compounds from the marijuana in a more kind of pharmaceutical framework. Hopefully we'll develop some new therapeutics and the recreational marijuana can be used just purely recreationally without this sort of veneer of it being a medicine. And I think a lot of the people who've been cashing in on medical marijuana will have to uh, cash out and switch over to recreational marijuana. Hmm. Interesting commentary. Yeah, I kind of agree on all those points. So we'll have to see. I would also be really happy to see more specific labeling and more oversight of potency labeling. I think there's a lot of variability in the accuracy of the labeling with marijuana. And definitely a lot of this stuff is packaged as candies and cookies and stuff that's attractive to children. I know in my practice, we've had some episodes of people overdosing uh, marijuana by eating edibles by accident, both my own patients, and then they've reported uh, kids or family members who've had that experience. So I do think it should be labeled if it's going to be packaged in something that's very kind of appealing and looks like a food. I would agree with that for sure. It is interesting to something that is kind of like viewed medicinally. And, you know, there's lots of kind of mind altering um, medications that are prescribed to patients. But I can tell you only anecdotally in my practice, I think the only kind of substance where people have come actually impaired to an office visit has been kind of marijuana. And they've been somewhat upset by the fact that, you know, the visit wasn't really able to proceed because of their degree of impairment because they think it's medicinal. So it is interesting how people view it and physicians view it. And I think also kind of like the lack of, of really kind of strong evidence telling you like how safe it is, what are the long-term effects. I think it makes it kind of hard to kind of tout it as like a miracle drug. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't mind if people want to use recreational marijuana. You know, I have some patients for whom I think it's not a great idea. I, I think it hurts them. I have others for whom it seems fine. But I don't really want to be involved. I don't want to be like writing a permission slip for everybody to use their marijuana. Because I don't think there's that kind of accuracy like there is with other pharmaceuticals. Um, I just don't think I can really truly say 
how much this is going to help. And there is data out there and I've seen various studies and I've seen various guidelines on what you could recommend to people, but I actually don't think that that information is as robust as a lot of the other information that we work with. And so I'm a little uncomfortable recommending it as a pharmaceutical in that context. All right. Well, let's hear about our article tonight because that sounds really cool, the one you picked out for this week. Yeah. So as you know, I'm on a hepatitis C kick. I'm doing a project for St. Max's to help our PCPs prescribe and treat for hepatitis C rather than refer our simple cases to GI. And John, I know you treat hepatitis C in your practice as a primary care doc, and I'm actually about to start with my very first patient. I just diagnosed someone with hepatitis C last week, and I'm going to treat her instead of referring her to GI, and I'm really excited about that. So this article is about treating patients who inject drugs with hepatitis C and treating them in the context of addiction clinics rather than sending them to specialty clinics. So let me give you guys some background on hepatitis C and patients who inject drugs. So people who use drugs make up a large proportion of all people with hepatitis C. It is estimated that up to 70% of people who inject drugs in some populations have contracted hepatitis C. There are strategies to identify and treat hep C in this population, but we really need more if we want to reach the worldwide goal of hep C elimination by 2030. So because of the new therapeutics that are over 95% effective in curing hep C, the WHO has set this worldwide goal for hepatitis C eradication. And I think we can do it, but we're going to have to involve people who inject drugs. The AASLD and the IDSA have guidelines that recommend prompt treatment for people who use drugs with hepatitis C, but many states that I just counted before I did this presentation, 13 states have sobriety restrictions on treatment, so they will not cover treatment in their own state Medicaid programs if the patients do not have some degree of sobriety or are not engaged in some kind of substance use treatment. Many previous trials of people who inject drugs exclude people with active drug use. So there are trials of people who used to inject drugs, but not trials of people who are actively injecting drugs. And those trials also have been small or limited by being at a single site. And finally, it has been shown that opioid treatment programs and community health centers can provide effective hepatitis C care. There's a bunch of papers demonstrating the efficacy of those projects. People who are actively injecting drugs might need additional supports to reach a sustained viral response, which is how we say a cure for hep C. So this was a study, not just can a community health center or an opiate treatment program treat hep C, but is there a model that they can offer to support patients and get them to that hep C cure that everybody wants? So before we launch into the paper, John, what's been your experience treating people with hepatitis C? So I think I I actually, the story behind this was about like three years ago, one of the resident physicians, I found out they just kind of submitted an authorization and treated someone for hepatitis C and kind of just ran it by GI and did it themselves. And it, he was a good resident, but I was like, wow, if the resident can do it, um, why why can't I do this yet? So I've been kind of looking into this and started to do this in my practice, and it's been really rewarding. So like this group, oftentimes, there's no surprise to anyone that's listening to this podcast that kind of patients in recovery or patients under treatment for substance use disorder, they struggle with barriers of things like making it to appointments, making it to appropriate testing. So if you kind of like refer them out, the chance of them actually making that referral, following up with that specialist and getting treatment, it's less likely to happen than some of our other patients because they have a lot going on. They're not only dealing with it addiction, but often there's a lot going on in their life that kind of led them to that way or caused issues with that. 
How about you, Sonia? So I haven't done it yet just because it's not an area that I had tackled. But like you said, I see other people doing it and I think I'm, you know, I could do that. Looks pretty easy at this point. New medications are easy to use. Testing's not too complicated. And I've been working up this protocol, which I'm hoping to share with all the PCPs in our network. And I'm excited to also start it myself. And as I said, I just diagnosed someone with hep C recently, and I'm looking forward to getting her treated. And it was nice because I was able to tell this patient, hey, you know, it says you have hepatitis C. I'm sorry to give you some bad news, but I just want to let you know we can take care of this. It won't be difficult. We can get rid of this for you. And this patient was extremely happy with that, just that I could sort of assure her that we would be able to take care of it. It wasn't going to be too complicated or onerous. She didn't have to go see a specialist or pay some $40 extra copay or fill out a whole new patient packet to get into a new office or any of those barriers that aren't overwhelming, but can be a lot for some of our patients. So let's start talking about the clinical question. So this was a pragmatic randomized controlled trial comparing two different models of hepatitis C care, a modified directly observed therapy model and a patient navigator model. So again, randomized controlled trial, looking at these two different models. The trial was carried out at community health centers and opioid treatment programs. It included people who injected drugs within 90 days of study entry, so active injection drug users. They had to be age 18 to 70, so basically all adults. Had to have hep C with a positive viral load, never been treated in the past, willing to be randomized to the directly observed therapy arm or a navigator arm, and they had to be willing to participate in all study visits. So you had to put a little bit of effort in to be in this trial, but it wasn't very tight otherwise. They let pretty much anybody with hep C who was actively injecting drugs into this trial. They did compensate the participants. If you made it to every single study visit, by the end you would get $400. I did note, as I said, you had to be willing to be randomized to a modified directly observed therapy arm, which meant that if you were in a methadone program and receiving methadone and you had earned take-homes, you often had to step back those take-homes because you had to be observed taking your hepatitis C medication. So it did include a willingness of some patients to intensify the care they were receiving as treatment for opioid use disorder. It excluded people who were pregnant or breastfeeding and people who had a diagnosis of hepatocellular carcinoma. In terms of the demographics, like who ended up in this study, it was done 2016 to 2018, so pre-COVID. It was conducted at 23 centers. They were either opioid treatment programs, which were 41% of the participants at opioid treatment programs, or community health centers, which were 59% of the participants. They were in large cities throughout the U.S. Of the 23 sites, eight offered methadone, 17 offered buprenorphine, and six offered buprenorphine in a directly observed therapy model, so a buprenorphine clinic where you could come every day to receive your buprenorphine. And some of them didn't offer any specific treatment for opiate use disorder. So they were community health centers that cared for people who used drugs but weren't actually treating opiate use disorder. The people in the study were mostly male, 70% male, kind of middle-aged, mean age 43, 65% white, 14% black, and 22% Latino. 46% lived in their own apartment or house and 54% were unhoused or were living in someone else's house, you know, crashing on a couch of a friend or a relative. So keep that in mind, 54% of this population was unhoused. Only 41% had reliable transportation. Only 35% were employed. And 17% had used buprenorphine, and 56% had used methadone in the past three months. Over 90% met criteria for both depression and anxiety. 
And then in terms of the hep C, 77% had genotype 1, 20% of them had HIV, and 7% had developed cirrhosis. They also had other substance use disorders. So 32% had alcohol misuse on top of injection drug use. And 76% had injected within four weeks of screening, and 48% injected three-plus times a day. The baseline urine drug screen for this study on entry to the study was positive for some illicit drug in 96% of patients. So I say that all to really point out how this is a population people might characterize as challenging. They are unhoused, unemployed, don't have transportation, actively injecting drugs many more than three times a day, and also have mental health issues, depression, and anxiety. So this is a group of people that is not often included in clinical trials because they're a little hard to keep track of and hard to get into your studies. So that's the population. All the patients received treatment for hep C, which was subosivir 400 milligrams, and valpatisvir 100 milligrams. It's a once-a-day medicine, once a day for 12 weeks, curative for hepatitis C in almost all cases. They had to have visits at weeks four, eight, and 12 during the course of treatment. And then every three months, they would come in up to about three years, as long as they were still available to be part of this study. They did hep C, PCR, and urine drug screens at every visit. And the two models they compared were a patient navigator model where they had trained patient navigators who coordinated hepatitis C treatment and also offered things like health education, assisted the patients in overcoming barriers. They offered psychosocial support. And they met with the patients four times over 12 weeks or more if needed. And they also would check in with the patient after treatment was complete. So that was a navigator arm. The other arm was a modified directly observed therapy. And it was called modified directly observed therapy because not every single dose was directly observed by the researchers. Patients had some take-home doses on weekends. And if they weren't being treated at an opiate treatment program with methadone where they would come in daily... They took the medicine home and they video recorded themselves taking the dose. So opening the pack, taking the dose. I don't know if they had to show the label or something. And then they had to submit that video to the researchers. So that was their directly observed therapy. The outcomes were whether you achieved sustained virological response, meaning a hepatitis C RNA of less than 15 units per milliliter for greater than 12 weeks. And they looked at that between 70 and 365 days from the end of treatment. Secondary response was whether you started treatment, medication adherence, and whether you completed treatment. They plan to publish more results later looking at reinfection and drug resistance outcomes as they follow people for a longer time, but that's not included in this paper. So just to summarize, I know I kind of talked a lot there. I'm going to summarize the clinical question. So in people who inject drugs and have hepatitis C, if you're treating them with the once daily sabosifir and valpatisvir for 12 weeks, do they do better with a patient navigator or with a directly observed therapy? And by better, do they reach sustained virological response at higher rates? So that's the clinical question. Let me pause here. John, what do you think of this clinical question? Do you think it was a good question? Do you think it's clinically relevant? I mean, that's a really great question. And I think, it, you know, take it a step further. It's also like, what's the best method of, of doing this? And probably one of your most difficult populations. I mean, I think that was kind of the biggest takeaway I took away from the first part of this is they really didn't cherry pick the the easy cases here. This is really kind of which the best way to treat this group of patients that have a lot of barriers in their healthcare. And I think that's a really cool question. And I think a lot of us are interested to hear what the answer is. Yeah. And 
it's no surprise that this medication works. We know this medicine works. It's been shown conclusively in multiple trials that the medicine works. So we don't really need to say, does this medicine work for people with hep C? We know it does. The question is, how can we find a model that works for this population who are injecting drugs? So this study had a lot of strengths. First is that the sample size was large. They had 755 participants and they met their enrollment goal. They tried to get at least 300 participants in each group to start the treatment. And they figured, given the dropout rate, they enrolled closer to 400 in each arm to make sure they had 300 people who started treatment in each arm of this study. They did randomize patients to treatment and they were randomized in blocks, stratified by city, status of their liver with cirrhosis, and by clinical setting, meaning by community health center or opioid treatment program. The demographics were similar in both the intention to treat population, meaning the population who were initially randomized, and the modified intention to treat group, who were the people who actually took the first studied medication dose. The only thing that was different between those two groups after patients had dropped out, but before they started medication, was race. And race was adjusted for. There was a small difference in race between those two populations. The inclusion criteria were very wide. And like you said, they didn't cherry pick just the good patients. And I liked how they presented the data in three groups. They had the intention to treat group, which was everyone who was randomized. They had a modified intention to treat group, which was everyone who initiated the study medicine, so took one dose of the medication. And then they had a per-protocol group, which was everyone who completed the treatment and had an SVR check. So it doesn't mean you took all the pills, because as we know, if you take all the medicine, this treatment will work for hep C. But it's people who stuck with the study, got to the end of the 12 weeks, and had a viral load checked. They may or may not have taken the medicine, but that was the protocol group. And they compared the results in those three groups. The follow-up was sufficiently long and complete, I thought clinically long enough to see if hep C had been cured. I thought the outcomes were good. They were simple to understand. They were clinically relevant. And they did report adverse events, although I wasn't too happy with that. There were an unusually high number of adverse events reported, but they weren't specific about what they were. And since this is a very high-risk population, I can assume they had adverse events for any number of reasons, not necessarily because of the study medication. Like, I can't imagine the presence of the patient navigator caused 50% of the people to end up in the hospital, say. So there's some limitations as well. Of course, patients and clinicians were not blinded. Both groups did not receive equal interventions. So these were kind of holistic interventions. So it can be hard to tease out exactly what part of it led to success. So navigators were trained to offer lots of different kinds of support, which the MDOT patients didn't have. The MDOT patients, that protocol allowed for daily check-ins. So they got a lot more support in that way, but they didn't have these trained navigators who knew about hepatitis C. So the two groups didn't really get the same thing. It was a pragmatic trial. So a large percent were lost to follow-up, up to 19% of the patients. And this is similar to prospective trials in this population, although it's less than other randomized controlled trials. A lot of our randomized controlled trials of medication, the dropout rate will be very small, nothing like 19%. The other thing that I kind of wish there were in this trial is a minimal intervention control group. So a group where basically they gave people the prescription and said, come back in four weeks, come back in another four weeks, come back in a third four weeks, okay, you're done, without either, because it limits generalizability a little bit. We're not sure how patients who inject drugs would do with a more minimal intervention treatment for hep C. So I kind of wish that was there. Another limitation, they couldn't really tell the difference between treatment failure and reinfection in this study. And I think future papers coming out of this group will look at that. I thought there were too many subgroups. There were these like forest plots that had way too much data in them. 
And as I said before, a very high adverse event rate, um, but those adverse events weren't really specified, so it was unclear to me how they related to the actual study. Finally, funding might cause some biases. It was funded by organizations that might have a financial stake in the outcome, although those funders had no role in the study design, the study implementation. They purely provided funding. The funders were the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, Gilead Sciences, which provided the study medication, Quest Diagnostics, and then two other companies, Monogram Biosciences and Orishore Technologies. Those also provided diagnostic testing. So funding may or may not have caused some bias. John, do you think that this was a valid study or any concerns you had about how they set it up? I really don't. I think that they did a really good job overall. I think that it's hard probably to make this study without having some industry funding. These medications are just really expensive and and relatively new. So I just don't see this being done without their involvement. Well, right. Like something named the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Group doesn't scream excess funding to me, nor do opioid treatment programs or community health centers. So you got to get your funding from somewhere if you're going to do this study. I, I would actually kind of argue, if anything, there's so many studies showing very high SVR12s and that the, when the use of this medication is done properly, I would imagine kind of targeting a, a probably a more difficult to treat population. If anything, it's probably going to be lower than what the other data would be. So it, it probably isn't even in their best interest to do that. But I think that this sounds like it might be like a humanitarian part of the pharmaceutical company. And I, I appreciate them doing that and putting themselves out there. I do, but I I really think the future of, you know, for Gilead and this medication is broadening the use of it outside of subspecialty practices. You know, so many patients who have hepatitis C are not able to get in with a gastroenterologist and manage to complete that treatment. And if they get all the primary care doctors using this medication, I think that'll mean a lot more sales for them. So I actually think it's smart for them to demonstrate efficacy in some of these populations who might not get into GI. Fair enough. Let's talk about the results. So I'm going to just give a real quick summary of the results here. There's a lot of numbers in this paper, but I'm just going to try to summarize them. No one wants to hear me list off a lot of numbers. Basically, the conclusion is that both models worked and they worked the same. So that's the bottom line. Both models worked really well, very high sustained virological response, and there was not a difference in the primary endpoint between the two groups. As you might guess, the modified directly observed therapy group had better adherence. Their adherence was about 5% higher, but that was determined not to be really clinically meaningful. And even though they had better adherence, they had the same sustained virological response as the patient navigator group. Both initiation and completion rates were high. And I think this speaks to the fact that the patients are very motivated for this. I mean, my patients with hep C are universally thrilled when they can finally get it treated. They're really happy to do that. And you know, I put in a lot of referrals that patients kind of passive aggressively ignore or pretend they didn't know about. You know, I try to get them into endocrine to talk about something or or whatever. I'm trying to refer them to physical therapy. They just don't do it. But people are pretty good about doing their hep C treatment. They really are happy to get this done. So patients did well with this study. And basically, the results suggest that people who are currently using drugs can reach high sustained viral response in a bunch of different settings with either of these two models, the modified directly observed therapy model or a patient navigator model. So that's the bottom line. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about specifics, just so people get a a sense of what really happened in this study and what some of these absolute actual numbers are. So first question is, how did people do 
in terms of actually getting in the study. Because as I said, there was a kind of a high dropout rate. So if you look at the very first group, the patients who were randomized, so they entered the study, they met criteria, they're randomized to the study, that's the intention to treat population. About 81% of them made it to the first study medication. So a little under 20% dropped out before they even took a single dose. So actually that's lower than I would think for this population. So 80% to 81, 82% made it to the first dose. Of people who made it to the first dose of medication, another 80% made it to completion of treatment. So only 20% dropped out once they started the medication. And then of the people who completed treatment, about 80 plus percent had a sustained virological response. And remember, completing treatment doesn't mean they took all the study medication. It just means they made it in contact with the study people 12 weeks, got their viral load checked at the end of 12 weeks, and thus completed the study. So about 80% of the people who completed the study had a sustained virological response. So in the end of everyone who started the study, on average, about 60% of the patients reached sustained virological response. So that's not necessarily good since this is medicine that's 90 plus percent effective, but For this population of people who got randomized to enter the study, 60% had their hepatitis C cured. I think that is pretty awesome. So that's kind of the numbers and how people moved through Mm -hmm. this study. A few other facts that I thought were interesting in this study. One is adherence. So people who made it to the first visit, the modified intention to treat people. So they came to the first visit, they took at least one pill. They had an adherence of about 73% in the navigator group, 78% in the directly observed therapy group. So a high number of pills got taken, which speaks to, I hope, relatively low side effects and people's interest in getting this treatment. Patients are very motivated for this treatment. Adherence in patients who completed the protocol was much higher, 93 in the patient navigator group and 91% in the directly observed therapy group. So people who made it through the whole protocol, most of them took most of the medication. Another thing I want to bring up is adverse events. I said before there were a lot of adverse events in this study, but it wasn't really clear exactly what caused them. So in the initial groups who were randomized, the modified directly observed therapy group, 376 people, or the navigator group, 379 people, about 200 people in each group had a serious adverse event. So like a little more than half, which is a lot. 27 in the MDOT group died and 18 in the navigator group died. Six people in the MDAT group had a life-threatening event and 11 in the Navigator group. And 176 in the MDOT group and 161 in the Navigator group were hospitalized. So really a lot of adverse events. But I don't really think it was because of the study. You know, I'm assuming they ended up in the hospital, almost died or actually died, not because of the treatment or because of the Navigators or because of the directly observed therapy, but because of all the other stuff that was going on in their lives. But they weren't really specific in the paper about what those adverse events actually were. So John, what do you think of the results? I think it was interesting what you said about the adverse events, because I guess a couple things. One, that's interesting because I would wonder with a group like this, what percentage of them are having adverse events and hospitalizations and deaths just from all their other kind of medical psychiatric issues and social issues. I thought it was pretty sad and kind of like a reflection of the state of like healthcare that, you know, at the end of this treatment trial, you were more likely to be cured of hepatitis C than to have stable housing, which kind of reflects really kind of a barrier to care in a lot of these patients. And kind of personally, I was really rooting for the navigator arm to hopefully come out on top. 
I understand that the direct observed therapy, we've used that for other things in the past. I think classically the first one was tuberculosis, although don't quote me on that, but I hear that a lot being from Baltimore, Maryland. And I often felt that for patients like directly observe them doing a medication that isn't like a safety concern, like methadone, for example, where you have to observe them for safety. I, I always felt it was kind of sad and kind of like demeans them a little bit as a person. It's, that's what I do with my kids for their fluoride vitamin every night. So I was really happy to see that kind of treating them like in a humanitarian uh, perspective and, and treating them like I would another patient with a navigator, giving them resources, came up just as effective in the long term for the sustained viral response. Yeah. And you know what was cool about this paper? If you look at the appendices that were included, you know, the supplemental information, they included all of the training materials that the patient navigators used to become trained on about hep C, about motivational interviewing, about community resources, all these different ways to help people. So if anyone out there is interested in any kind of similar program or just learning more about hep C, especially from a little bit of a layperson's perspective, this paper included all of those materials, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about the results and how they will help me in patient care. So I do have patients who are similar to people in this study, patients who inject drugs and who have hepatitis C. The treatment is not really feasible at the current time in my setting because I'm not going to directly observe anybody doing anything and I don't have a patient navigator. So if I were to do anything similar to this, I would just kind of have to be the patient navigator, which I can do with a smaller cohort of patients. If I got up to like 500 patients, I'd need a real navigator. But I actually did look through the materials that were presented in the paper just to get some ideas of some of the things to do to support patients with hepatitis C. The benefits were cure of hepatitis C, which was awesome. And there were no harms of one model compared to the other. There were high rates of adverse events, but I really don't think they're related to the hepatitis C treatment. I think they're related to the chaos that's in people's lives. And so I'm not putting all those adverse events in the harms category. I really think the benefits were worth the costs, especially from the patient's perspective where they weren't paying extra money for the navigator or having to, I guess you had to use your time to do the directly observed therapy, but a lot of them were receiving directly observed methadone anyway. So it didn't make a huge change in how they had to structure their days. So in conclusion, both models of care in this study, which was called the HERO study, I think I didn't mention at the beginning, both models of care led to high rates of sustained virological response in a real-world setting. There is insufficient evidence to require directly observed therapy. So basic care with a navigator was sufficient for a hepatitis C cure. And so we should definitely remove restrictions on hep C treatment for people who have recent or ongoing injection drug use. So those remaining 13 states who say you can't get treated for hepatitis C unless you're drug-free or not injecting, those restrictions should all disappear right away, I think. And I also liked how sustained virological response was high despite imperfect adherence. Although it was true that the better your adherence, the higher your likelihood of sustained virological response and that just, you know, to me says we should be promoting regimens that are very easy to complete. If we can get patients to take the majority of their medication, they have a higher rate of cure. So I'm going to continue to promote treatment of hepatitis C in community settings. And this study shows it really is effective, even in some of the most difficult to work with population. So John, do you think that this study will change your practice at all? I don't think it's going to change my practice. It, I think it's just one more feather in my cap for why I'm going to keep treating people. And I feel that in a primary care setting, I, I'm more than comfortable doing this. And I think that everyone out there should really 
become comfortable with it. If it's not that hard, if you treat sinusitis, you can treat this. Um, it's a very standard workup. These medicines are very well tolerated, probably better than most of our sinusitis antibiotics. Um, and one resource that I found really good when I was learning to do this, if anyone's interested, I mean, this is a sidebar. Uh, University of Washington has an online course for free um, and has a bunch of CME entitled with it too. And you can go through that in a couple of days and it will get you everything you need to know about liver failure and, and hepatitis C, or at least to get started. I know other places have it too, but that's the one I did. That's awesome. We can put a link to that in the show notes for any of our listeners who are interested in doing this themselves. Well, we have a few audience comments to share with our listeners about episode 16, about providing MAT in jail and how that affects recidivism and mortality. Dr. Tim Roberts tweeted, enjoyed the episode while doing some grocery shopping tonight. It has spurred me in to look into how our county jail is handling opioid use disorder treatment. You know, this has kind of spurred us as well to think a little bit about how the best way to support these patients that are incarcerated is. We would love to hear from the other audience members um, if they have any other thoughts about this, and we can share them in an upcoming episode as well. We also heard from the authors of episode 16, which is always really exciting for us. Um, they thanked us for sharing their research, and Dr. Evans said, at the end of John's, expressed interest in studies on the economic cost and benefit of offering medications to treat opioid use disorder in jails. A perceptive question. It happens that we are working with our research teams now to answer that exact question with a plan to share results in the upcoming year. Stay tuned. Dr. Friedman, one of the other authors, sent us the link to the website about this new research project called HEAL Initiative. Dr. Evans also said, your audience might be interested to know that this work is part of a federally funded national network of community engaged researchers known as the Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, JCOIN. JCOIN offers free training and technical assistance and many other resources to expand use of effective policies, practices, and interventions in daily practice within health and justice settings. We will put a link to JCOIN and the HEAL initiative in the show notes, and we want to thank Dr. Evans and Friedman for sharing this information with us. Yeah, it's really cool that they emailed us, and I just want to thank them again for doing this work. It's so important to understand what's going on in carceral settings because, like we talked about in that episode 16, such a high percentage of our patients end up incarcerated, and they often do very poorly both while incarcerated and after they get out. And so anything we can do to improve the care while they're in, support them while they're in there, support them after they get out is really important. So thank you guys for continuing to research this population and these questions. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us an email, message us on Twitter or Facebook, join our Facebook group, or comment on our YouTube channel. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, video production by Paul Kennedy, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Long Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.